Coming up on today's show, we'll get some reaction from the Conservative Party of Canada as they learn more about the Liberals and the NDP teaming up. We'll also chat with a lady who's involved in the tracking of some of the riches of Putin and the oligarchs of Russia. And the UCP has announced they're moving to mail-in balloting for the leadership review. Today, I'm announcing that the Liberal Party has reached an agreement with the new Democratic Party to deliver results for Canadians now. This supply and confidence agreement starts today and will be in place until the end of this Parliament in 2025. What this means is that during this uncertain time, the government can function with predictability and stability, present and implement budgets, and get things done for Canadians. This deal means the Canadians have woken up to, an, in essence, an NDP Liberal majority government. And I think we have to let that sink in. This is an NDP Liberal government, and they have the majority. 82% of voters did not vote for a Liberal NDP government, including millions of Liberal voters. That's Candace Bergen and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, reacting, well, Trudeau announcing and Bergen reacting to the announcement yesterday that uh, the Liberals and the NDP have reached what's being called a supply and confidence agreement that will run until the end of Parliament in 2025. Essentially, the NDP will support confidence votes um, that the Liberal government faces throughout that time. And in return, there will be concessions towards them on some of the issues that they've campaigned on, including pharmacare, dental care, housing. Uh, There's a list of them. Obviously, uh, upsetting to a lot of people in the West, particularly in Alberta, as I said, our Premier very upset, saying this is a direct threat to the energy industry in our part of the country. So uh, a lot of reaction. For more, let's check in with Matt Jenneru now. Uh, Matt is a Conservative MP in Edmonton, Riverbend. Matt, thanks for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Yeah, no, great to be on, Jay. Thanks. Um, lots of reaction from uh, high-profile conservatives across the country calling this, you know, a dark day for Alberta's energy industry. Just give us your initial reaction when you heard the news. Yeah, a bit of a, a bit of a shock. You know, this obviously from the the energy perspective, it's uh, huge implications for Alberta, but for for so many things here in Ottawa and in Ottawa today, and it. Impacts are the the committee, the the structure of, of parliament, you know, questions of the prime minister, the accountability of the prime minister. There's just there's there's so many things that this uh, has that potential to ripple through, and it and the cost of living obviously is a, a huge issue right now for many Canadians. And the the election platform promises of the NDP, how much of that is now going to be part of this deal, where people had the decision just a few months back to make the choice on who to support, and ultimately they they didn't support this. Uh, this coalition. So it's, again, it's going to have a lot of ramifications, you know, not just in Alberta, but uh, through through everything that happens here in Parliament as well. It's not, you know, unheard of. We've seen it happen before in this country, more so at the provincial level, but it's not unheard of. And I mean, are there comparisons here, Matt, between, you know, the fact that the, the, the party that you're a member of is an amalgamation of two Conservative parties? Now, it went through a formal framework and all the rest, but is that not similar? Is there any similarity there? 
Well, I'd argue that Canadians had the opportunity to vote, right? Canadians had the opportunity to say, you know, whether it's buying memberships in the party or whether it's through general elections, that there's that opportunity to for, for Canadians to have that uh, that, uh, that ability to, to weigh in on this. We were we were, were blindsided by this as members of Parliament, but I think a lot of Canadians were as well. You know, it's, it, it has massive ramifications if you think of, of things like like committees. You know, there's there's a there's a wording in their agreement that says uh, any unnecessary obstruction. You know, does that does that now consider the the times that we've had SNC Lavalin and and we uh, have come before committee and I think really uh, highlighted a lot of uh, failings of this government. And you know, now now those things are, are yeah. likely off the table because they'll they'll have the ability to to just push that through as uh, as government. So no, I you know I, I think again it was you know, we just went through an election. There was ability if if they really felt this was necessary to to pitch this, but they denied it all the way through the election and now here we're left with it. Um, Part of this, of course, is, you know, according to Trudeau yesterday, saying, you know what, this will provide stability and allow us to get things done for Canadians. I just want to play, this is Randy Boisson, sort of, you know, giving the the company line, if you will, saying, you know what, this is what Canadians want. I can tell you that when I was on the doors, people said to me, you know, I'll give you my vote, but don't be coming back in two years asking for another one. You all go work together now. And that's what uh, we're being able to do. That's Liberal MP Randy Boissonneau. Uh, did you hear that, Matt? Is that what voters were telling you? <laughs> no, I've heard Randy say the company line before. <laughs> agreed. Uh, but no, you know they they weren't saying you know I'm I'm I certainly want you to if if things don't go well for for you I want you to to, to side with Trudeau to, to to make sure that you know all the all the anti energy policies they they put in place a lot of the, the the high spending policies they put in place that that you're out there supporting him as best you can that's certainly not something that uh, that I heard at the door and I I, I don't think you know many many Canadian members of Parliament or candidates across the country heard that the door. Canadians had that choice you know, just a few months ago to be able to, to, to decide on who they wanted to be the Prime Minister, who they wanted to, to form government, and, and ultimately, you know, it's, it, it, to, to do this backdoor thing blindsides uh, all of us. Matt, for your party, um, we know you're in the midst of a leadership campaign, um, and I think the uh, the expectation was uh, whoever that leader was would be leading the party into an election probably next year, if you go on how long minority governments last historically, maybe early 2024. Um, how does this change what the Conservative Party of Canada does now with this agreement in place until at least sometimes in, in, in 2025? What does it mean for your party? Yeah, you know that's that's a great question, Shay. You know, I'm trying to think about that myself too, because it's you know ultimately we're we ride the momentum. We we choose a new leader. That new leader ultimately comes in the house or or, or isn't in the house, depending on on who wins. But you you ride that momentum of the leadership and, and hopefully uh, right into an election. It, you know now it's it, this new leader with. If they're not in the the House of Commons, uh, with some of the candidates aren't elected MPs, then then that. There's, uh, I guess, by-elections that uh, that would occur to, to get them in. You kind of, I guess, it's you know, as soon as you hit that, uh, that September date, it's a it's a hurry up and wait until the, the to 2025. Whereas, you know, I I would have liked to think that we could have uh, forced this government to. Uh, to, uh, in a confidence vote sooner than that, but uh, this whole agreement changes that landscape uh, entirely. Does it change who's going to be in this race ultimately? Do you think, you know, for some of the front runners or people that are predicted to possibly be the, the final candidate standing, do you think maybe they rethink this and it could change everything that your party's doing right now? 
Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard any of that. Um, that. That's an interesting perspective, but I haven't heard any of that. Um, I, I think the, uh, from, from my, again, my perspective, my opinion, I, I think we probably have most of the, the people who are running in the race now. The deadline for, for cutoff is coming up shortly. Uh, there's a significant amount of money you have to raise. I, I, w- I would think that, uh, that those individuals are in. There might, you might see some drop out, yeah. uh, perhaps, but I, I think ultimately we have the people who are in uh, or, or thereabouts uh, right now. Uh, Matt, I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks, Shane. You bet. That's Matt Jenneru, who is a Conservative MP. All right, we're going to talk now about the Ukraine-Russia situation, specifically oligarchs. And I'm sure you've heard that term, right? Part of the Western world's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been to try and inflict as much financial pain as possible, not only on Vladimir Putin, but his cronies known as the oligarchs, which basically are fabulously rich Russians, so rich they have the power to influence government. That's essentially what an oligarch is. Um, Very, very rich, more money than you know what to do with, and enough money to influence actual government policy, typically to your own benefit. And that's exactly what Russia has been for quite some time, an oligarchy. Um, Now, when we're talking about how much money these people have, it is insane. I mean, it is wealth that it's really hard to wrap your head around sometimes. It's just billions and billions and billions of dollars in property and planes and yachts and you name it. Um, now, there's a new online database that's documenting all of this. It's kind of mind-blowing to go through it. Uh, joining us to talk about what's going on and how this all works, because it's international, of course, and it's extremely important to sort of try and come up with an idea of what we're even talking about here, which isn't easy to do. So Louise Shelley joins us now. She's the director of the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Center at George Mason University. Uh, Louise, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. I mean, first of all, this this new database is, is just, uh, I think they're at about 18 billion documented so far. Uh, it's It's almost impossible to track all of this money, is it not? It's very hard because it's hidden in shell companies and the great secrecy that accompanies these oligarchs' wealth. When we talk about how much money we have here, though, I mean, Roman Abramovich, who is the owner of the Chelsea Premier League, they figure he's worth $8 billion. I mean, he has properties all over Europe. Oleg Deripaska, about $6 billion. He's got a mansion in London, villas in Italy, the super yacht. How do you go about trying to build a catalog and, you know, this Russian asset tracker, how will they do this kind of work to try and get to the bottom of it? In some cases, the individuals have been named, like, knowing that that Abramovich owns Chelsea. But what is different about this database that has been compiled by the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project is that they have been identified with um, and have helped investigate many of the leaks from offshore havens and from banks. And in these data leaks, we've been able to see the money movements of many of the corrupt individuals that move money for Putin or the oligarchs that have money at the grace of Putin. For example, in one of these leaks, you have a cellist who's close to Putin who has billions of dollars. Have you ever heard of a musician with billions of dollars? <laughs> no. But in the Panama Papers, that was a leak of, you know, secret accounts that went into Panama, one could find this information of, of, Mr., of Mr. Erdogan, who, who is a cellist. 
And he's also been investigated for his holdings in the art market by the U.S. Um, Permanent Committee on Investigations. So you need to go through a lot of sources to find this information. Why is it important that they do it? I mean, I, we know these sanctions are, are designed to, you know, in some cases, seize the asset of oligarchs and Putin and things like that. Um, is, is that the reason? Is that why it's so important to get some understanding of who has what where? I mean, it's important because this wealth was acquired through corruption, and many of these oligarchs worked with organized crime and intimidated people to acquire this wealth. For example... Deripaska, who controls the aluminum industry in Russia and has holdings throughout the world, there were over almost four dozen people murdered before the ownership rights went to him for the aluminum factory that he owned. So this goes back into the early Soviet period and the very corrupt and criminal practices that led to the rise of this oligarchs. So it's important that we pay attention to this. We didn't pay enough attention to it previously. But it's also important that maybe some of these assets, if they can be seized and not just frozen of the oligarchs, can be used to help rebuild Ukraine and pay for the enormous cost of maintaining the refugee population and the displaced people in Ukraine. Will we ever know? Will we ever be able to determine exactly who holds what where? I mean, you've got to think that part of the game, if you want to call it that, that these oligarchs and Putin have played for this long is to make sure that they're they're insulated as best they can be, right? They have tried really hard. Yeah. But, for example, Canada, your country, has done a lot to try and increase understanding of who owns what assets. It's done a lot to do what is called establish open beneficial ownership registries. And if other countries in the world follow Canada's example, it will be much easier to to do, because maybe they've hidden these assets in the past, but to keep holding them, they need to show who's behind them. Um, How long... I'm just wondering, you know, in terms of this kind of a project, we know, I don't know how long the situation in Ukraine is going to last, but is this something that will continue? And is there a possibility that the the oligarchs are going to change their stance because the the pain they're suffering will be enough to convince them that there's another way to go here and Putin is the problem? Some of them have said that they're against the war. And being against the war is a prohibited statement in Russia these days. You can get 15 years in prison for saying you're against the war. Some of them have not criticized Putin, but they control the key sectors of the economy in Russia, and that they have enormous influence. And he tries to dismiss this now, but I am sure there is dissatisfaction growing in Russia with the way this war is going and the consequences for Russia, and they can play an important role in this political environment. That's the, that, I mean, I, that makes sense to me, Louise. Have we seen any examples before? Like, I mean, if you've got these oligarchs with, you know, the billions and billions and billions of dollars, which in some ways become useless to them because they're international pariahs, they can't travel, they can't go anywhere, they can't do anything, um, it seems like a really effective lever to pull. Have we seen it ever work in any other instances? You know, sanctions have not been so effective in in some countries, but these oligarchs 
are very impressed with their reputations, and their reputations are absolutely key to them. They, they say, you know, in their legal statements that they want to be recognized as philanthropists. They want to be recognized for the good works that they're doing. And so by freezing them out of this public presence that they have so sought, it is an enormous blow to their egos, just like going after the yachts that they own. Yeah. And so Russians are different. They're not the same as um, as powerful people in other countries. There's a different mentality, and these sanctions may work better against this particular community than it has against others. Very, very interesting. Louise, thank you so much for your insight. I appreciate you joining us today. You're welcome. And I hope we can all do something about this together. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll pass on how we can do that. Thank you very much. of issues being raised that I think are good from the listeners. Um, This listener says, I'm a longtime UCP member. My membership came due last winter. I didn't renew it because I can't get to Red Deer to vote. Now that it's too late to renew to vote, they changed the rules. They called me wanting me to renew, and I made it clear I wouldn't because I couldn't get to Red Deer. Now I would renew so I can vote, but it's too late. Farmer Lars says, remember the cons changed membership rules so anyone can buy one for anyone else. This new format allows all members to vote. How corrupt can you get? So already there are concerns about how this is happening. Let's check in with Tom Vernon now, who is the Global Provincial Affairs reporter. Tom, thanks for joining us on Short Notice here. Appreciate it. Oh, happy to jump on. Okay, so just bring us up to speed here. This announcement from the UCP, just a full-on, straight-up mail-in vote, right? Yeah, so they were having, obviously, some logistics issues in Red Deer, and there were conversations about opening polling stations in Edmonton and Calgary or other communities um, but instead, they're going full-on mail-in ballots. So the SGM, the meeting, physical meeting in Red Deer will, will not go ahead. It's going virtual, so they'll still have election readiness, stuff like that. But as far as the vote is concerned, if you are a UCP member, you will get a ballot and you will mail it in. So there will be no in-person voting whatsoever? It will all be done through mail-in, or can people still show up in Red Deer? No, it will be uh, all mail-in ballots. Some of the concerns that I'm seeing, and I think, you know, there was a lot of, I think this was a pretty high level meeting that took place last night and a lot of probably back and forth. There was a bunch of different options. Any idea why they decided to settle on this? Is it just pure logistics, you think, Tom? Yeah, and so I haven't spoken with anyone who's made the decision yet. I mean, the logistics are a big issue. Now, look, Premier Kenny's opponents are going to, they're already angry with this. Yes, I've, yeah. I've, I've heard from a couple saying, like, look, this is this is a terrible move. This is absolutely unfair uh, because they worry about membership sales. I heard that one comment uh, that, that you read from the, the Bureau about the change in how you can pay for and purchase uh, memberships. Yeah. That doesn't take effect yet. That doesn't take effect, I think, until next month. So that wouldn't impact the vote here. But... Um, Look, Premier Kenny is a master organizer, and I mean, I've spoken with people who say, "Look, he was out; his people were out ensuring people got memberships." So, uh, if, if you're out selling memberships right to the last moment, um, memberships are now more important than registrations. So, it's look, both sides are selling memberships and, and looking for registrations. It'll be very interesting to see how uh, this all plays out now. Yeah, it, it sure will, and I mean. <sighs> Just the overwhelming response, I think, is interesting on its own time. I don't think anybody expected, you know, this many thousands of people signing up to cast a vote. 
No, I mean, you, you think they, they book the, the venue in Red Deer thinking, okay, yeah, maybe we'll have a couple thousand, 2,500 people show up to these things. And that's normal for yeah. a leadership review, right? You'd get, yeah, you get a couple thousand people show up. But I mean, this one is, it's taken on a whole campaign of its own, both sides signing up people, trying to get out the vote. So when they announced the number that it was already nearly 14,000 at the pre-registration deadline, and that they were expecting up to 20,000 people, I mean, I think everybody was blown away by the sheer volume of people uh, signing up to take part in this. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Tom, thanks so much for the update. Appreciate it. Hey, happy to jump on. That's Tom Vernon, Global's Provincial Affairs reporter. And as we say, uh, the UCP going to a mail-in vote for the leadership review on April the 9th. Uh, David Dorward, former MLA, sends a text, says, I did the math. If each voter in Red Deer took five minutes to vote, uh, the group needed 240 booths, and they'd have to stagger everyone somehow. Parking would have been impossible for a mile around the hotel, and there aren't enough cabs and Uber and Red Deer to handle it. You're right, David. There's no question. Um, there was other considerations. There was other discussions being had in terms of how can we accommodate this crush of people. Um, there was talk of, you know, maybe adding additional polling places in Red Deer. You don't have to do it all within a six-hour period. They had expanded it from 9 to 9 instead of 12 to 6. Maybe you add another day. There was even talk of adding polling places in Edmonton and in Calgary as well to try and expand it. But, you know, just taking a look at some of the texts that, you know, people are sending in, um, you know, this is... I was going to go to Red Deer. That was fine. But, you know, what about people who decided to sit this one out because they live in Lethbridge or they live in Fort McMurray? Didn't want to have to make the trip to Red Deer, so they didn't get the memberships. Now, um, can they still get in? So, I mean, it opens up a whole can of worms. There's no question. 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. If you want to weigh in on this, let's go to Timothy in Pinocchio now. Hi, Timothy. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Shay. Um, I kind of agree with that texture about uh, the deadline being uh, passed already because um, now it's too late to get a membership. I was I didn't get a membership because I didn't want to wait and stand around all day in Red Deer. I didn't have time or the money to do that. So I think the UCP board would be wise to uh, extend the membership deadline. But um, that's not really my point. My point was um, trying to figure out why everybody has such a distrust of the mail-in ballot system. And I don't know if you could maybe tell me why. Um, uh, I... Like, because as far as I know, like, this, the people who count the ballots at the in-person vote are vetted and, and they're bonded, just like yeah. the people who would be counting the mail-in ballots and the people voting don't get to go behind the doors in either situation. I just don't understand why there's so much distrust in a mail-in ballot. Uh, there never used to be until the last election in the United States. I'm just going to be honest with you, and a lot of people will get angry yeah. with me about that, but that's simply what it is. The narrative started that the election was rigged and stolen by mail-in ballots, and that's pure and simple like, why we still hear it here. Yeah, like, I, are they worried that us posties aren't going to deliver? <laughs> like, I just, it just seems kind of ridiculous. Like, you can't see them count it when you're voting person. You can't see them count it when you mail it in. What's the difference? Yeah, I, I hear you, Timothy. I think, you know, by, we've used mail-in ballots in this country for a very, very long time. It's not new. I guess the question is, you know, and I'm seeing it on the text line, it's not the people who mail in the ballot, it's the people who count the ballots. There's just distrust around 
not only mail-in ballots, but also around the UCP leadership races. I mean, take a look at what happened with the last one. Uh, I read you the um, text that I got from David Dorward, former uh, MLA. I got another one from Mark Norris, a former minister in the Conservative government, former MLA with the Conservatives, um, says, I've never been a UCP supporter. Their tent's too narrow. Um, he says, it's clear that people were buying memberships to vote against him. He and his crew know that, and that changed the rules to win. Not good at all, and it's just more of the same. Says, use my name. And say that I'm a former minister. That's Mark Norris, who used to be part of the Conservative government um, back a number of years. So um, we're hearing from some pretty high-ranking Conservatives saying, yeah, yeah I, I don't like this. But David Dorward says, no, it's fine. They had to do something. Logistically speaking, there was no choice. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.